Friday, December 17th, 2021. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco. We're on Rambo 2 Shaloni Land. And for more information, please go to weeklyrev.org. <coughs> Excuse me. I click on the Land Acknowledgement tab, and there's a lot of different links there, including maps, places to donate, and a lot more information. Start off the show here with music by Blackberry, who we sadly lost this past week on December 13th. Uh, Blackberry was an activist, a musician, and a really solid force in the queer community. And uh, none of the words I feel like I will say will do justice. I was grateful to know him, and I learned so much from him, and he will be greatly missed, and he left behind so much wonderful music, and I know changed the lives of so many queer folks out there um, 
through his life, through his actions, and <sighs> taking a moment to think of him. I have so many memories with him, and I think um, all of us who who got a chance to know him are so grateful to have had him in our lives, and may his memory be a blessing. <sighs> so um, this will be the next to last show. I'm having some feelings about it, certainly. Uh, I, I say this, I feel like I'm saying the same thing every week. <laughs> so maybe that's another reason I am, you know, deciding to step down from this. I've learned so much from being here and from the folks I've spoken to and have had on the show, including Blackberry. And yeah, I feel like I kind of come in here <laughs> every week and have the same the similar gripes, and it just feels like this dystopian world gets pushed further and further, uh, where the rich keep getting richer, the poor keep getting poorer, which of course has been happening for centuries here, but um, we can really see it even more so here in San Francisco. And as the pandemic pushes onward, and uh, it's so much of it has been just due to lack of action from the powers that be whether it's spreading misinformation or not stopping spreading misinformation. I mean, they could have sent out at-home tests and PPE from the very beginning, getting people to stay at home. The uh, vaccine companies could have opened their patents, so you know it was open for no matter who wanted to make vaccines. But instead, again, greed has ended up killing a lot of people. And there are a lot of folks around the world who do not have access to vaccines. And then here in the States, there are people who just refuse to get them. And it's uh, probably going to just talk myself into a depressive corner here, but it's important, to, I feel like, as a limited time on this earth to just share what's going on and share the truth. And it's, it's honestly, it's quite frightening. And there have been so many people who have done so much to try to keep themselves and others safe. And at the same time, there are people who just don't care. And then there are the powers that be, and I try to really direct the anger with them, with the folks who do have the means and the ability and the platforms to share the truth and to help people and, to sh and choose not to. I had read recently that uh, Bezos and Musk were like angry at each other, and I think best case scenario is that they choose to fight each other, and then they hit each other so hard that they wake up and they're like, oh, we're going to redistribute all of our wealth and discourage everyone else from being a billionaire ever again. That's like the best case scenario, I think, because at first I had a very... Uh, um, <laughs> a different type of thought that that wouldn't have changed things in the long run. If people are, it's like really the behavior you have to stop. Not so much the individuals, it's the behavior. And if people are going to continue to assume that hoarding wealth is a good thing, we need to stop that. Because even if these people end up uh, no longer being alive, well, there's going to be someone else who's going to take their place. So it's all about behavior. And then it's uh, it's just so hard because uh, I understand uh, through a certain aspect. When you don't have a government looking out for you, it's people just do whatever they can to survive. And then here in the San Francisco, there's been talks of funding the police even more, which is just the dumbest fucking thing in the world. Um, this is the same police force where they've had racist and sexist and homophobic texts that have been discovered. Uh, they, they harass and arrest unhoused people. They kill people. They're refusing to get vaccinated. Um, yet why would we give them more money and more power? I don't understand that. There's also going to be more surveillance. And it's just, it's again, it's criminalizing poverty, which is the exact opposite thing that should be happening. People should be helped. 
give people fucking housing. The best way to uh, solve uh, homelessness is to ensure people have housing. And we have like so many empty units. There are condos that are going up all the time. So many empty units. Empty apartments and houses around. And a reminder for, I mean, there's so much misinformation that's out there. People are like, oh, people come from everywhere else to come be in San Francisco. And a reminder that in 2015, there was a very thorough survey that was done, and over 70% of unhoused people were born and raised in San Francisco, or they were uh, they were housed here before previously being unhoused. So that means folks have been evicted or they can't afford rent. And so if you're looking and saying, oh my gosh, there's so many people on the street here, I don't understand how your solution could be anything other than providing housing. And then online, there's a lot of fucking fascists who are just like, we don't need to arrest everyone. And I'm like, how is that supposed to fucking help anybody? That makes things fucking worse. Even if you don't want to look at it from a moral or ethical standpoint, it economically doesn't make any sense. So you can't fucking win. And people are like, oh, San Francisco, progressivism doesn't win. I'm like, when has this city ever fucking been progressive? If, uh, you know, if folks are actually able to uh, have their needs met, that would be a different, that would be a lot different than it is now. It's not progressive here by any means. By any means. <sighs> All right. Oof. I think it's um, interesting that, um, so all the shows here at Mutiny Radio, um, which I recommend folks listen to, um, some are comedy, some are music. There's a variety of shows here, and um, there is, when we uploaded our shows to Apple Podcasts, they all have the same logo, the Mutiny Radio logo, and it's all classified under comedy, which I think is really funny, unironically, I should say. I did used to do comedy, um, but then I started talking about things like this, and it was really find, hard to find humor in uh, situations where uh, the planet is, people are just abusing the planet, people are abusing each other, and... Uh, folks don't feel safe to go outside and this was even pre-pandemic so things were pretty awful before in a lot of ways for a lot of people don't don't turn this off i'm not trying to it's i don't know i personally would rather hear someone telling the truth and accurately from my opinion uh than to just pretend everything's fine because that doesn't do anyone any good i'm all for escaping every now and then but uh you can't do that forever and who's that going to help anyway <sighs> oh yeah so it's classified under comedy which i think is funny because it's not a very funny show. And uh, oftentimes when I have guests, I haven't had a guest in a while, but thankfully our last episode on the 31st, we will have a guest, and I think that will be much more humorous because, of course, more healing and humor comes when you're with someone else. So I'm looking forward to that, and I want to have a big thank you to all the folks who have been on the show over the years and have helped share share these links. Thanks to Pam at the studio and all the folks who have really uh, put in the effort to make this show happen. It's been an eight long fucking years. Had a bunch of useless, <laughs> terrible presidents of all all stripes. And uh, regardless of your party, uh, things are pretty, pretty awful. But yeah, keep on listening. See, doesn't this make you feel better? Does it make people feel better if they're listening to someone who's more depressed than they are? Maybe? I don't know. That's not my goal. I don't want to depress anyone. I want to uplift people. And I know that the only way things get better is if we have some kind of positive, optimistic attitude. Nothing that's uh, too far-fetched, but, you know, I mean, if you don't hope for a better future, then what's the point? I'm just going let to it, let it happen. And I think that's another reason I'm leaving is, or leaving, I make it sound like it's super serious. So I'm still going to be around. But the, the idea is I want to dedicate this time and energy to something else that feels more collaborative and perhaps more proactive out there. So we'll see what that is. Not quite sure yet. Have some ideas, but uh, we'll get there. And later on in the show, um, 
I'm going to be playing um, a video of Bell Hooks, who um, passed away this past week as well. So there is a video from her at the New School in New York um, that came out in 2015, and it's about an hour and a half. So we're not going to play all of it, but I'll play a good chunk of it, and I would encourage folks to listen to the rest of it, and I'll provide the links with our show notes over at weeklyrev.org. So let's get into some news articles before I forget to. How about that? First of all, this is from the Anti-Police Terror Project, and this is an event that's happening, I believe it's happening tonight. So if you're listening on Friday, December 17th, Check this out. Oakland, make sure you take advantage of the last night of this year's Town Nights series. Uh, this is an example of our violence prevention dollars in action. Limited supply, so come early. So, and we'll share uh, this. It's 5 to 9 p.m., and it's family-friendly. There's free food and presents. There's a holiday vendor market, kid crafts, pinky, la payasita, uh, magician, face painting, and a bounce house. And this is at uh, Josie De La Cruz Park at 1637 Fruitvale Avenue in Oakland. So yeah, we'll share this. Um, and I mean, events like this are, is what helps people. So glad that that's happening. And we'll share more events as they are coming on. All right, I'm kind of going in not necessarily any uh, type of order today, but wanted to also share, um, hope to provide information here. So this is from It's Going Down. You can follow at, uh, at IGD underscore news on Twitter. Link to the PDF for making these DIY heaters, great for mutual aid projects during the winter months, is linked in the latest episode of This Is America. So there's a show also on itsgoingdown.org that you can listen to. And um, let's see. It's a video of a... Let's see if there's any sound to this. Not so much. So, But it is a... um, Let's see if there's any written uh, instructions. If not, I'll just uh, post a link to the podcast and folks can listen to it but i feel like uh anyways to uh <sighs> create heat for folks who need it the better that sounded all right let's take a look down i'm scrolling down here to see if there is this looks like it's mostly news so i will post a link to the um podcast and folks can listen in also this website is a great um source of information okay so heater block um, had a productive day making the copper coil alcohol burners today these are going out to water protectors and specific local camps this week uh there's a zine might get an update on a few small things that worked better or faster this time so let's see so and that's block b-l-o-c heater block and i'm clicking on the link now heater block okay so it looks like little coils all right um Okay, so they have a guide for building copper coil alcohol heater and safety enclosures now available. Please share this scene with everyone who's interested. Okay, so um, lots of information here. It's on Google Drive. I will share it on our page at weeklyrev.org under today's episode because I feel like that's going to be a little bit more impactful than me trying to read this uh, PDF, which is 20 pages. I'll start off with just at least the um, a few... Uh, piece of info about it though, copper coil alcohol burners are great for small enclosed spaces like tents or a small room, safe to use indoors, bad for outdoor use, the flame blows out easily, can be used for heating or cooking, sometimes called an alcohol jet burner. A complete heating kit will include an alcohol burner, a safety enclosure, a few lighters, preferable the long stemmed kind, a gallon of fuel, tissue or paper towels to clean the burner burner coil, optional, a second smaller wire mesh cylinder for cooking, 
and a milk crate to keep it off the floor. So the table of contents, which is 20 pages, so it includes how it works, heater safety, carbon monoxide safety, fuel info, parts and costs, building copper coil burner, building safety enclosure, maintenance, printable mini flyers. Very cool. So lots of great information. See, I'm uplifted already because there are so many folks out there doing the work. And one thing I've definitely learned is that it's really just the people doing the work to keep each other safe. And that's what we have to rely on. So great. That's great. All right. Next what else did I want to share with you all? Before we get into some more music, let's see here. We got that. We got this. Okay. This is from More Perfect Union. Workers who make cakes for Baskin Robbins are forced, forced to work 12 to 14 hours a day, make 13 plus cakes a minute. What the fuck? 13 cakes a minute? I, I mean, I love cake and I can't even eat 13 cakes a minute. Make 13 plus cakes a minute? and get three sick days a year, that's fucked up. Workers say they've developed arthritis and been denied time off for cancer treatments. Now 100 plus, mainly immigrant Latina workers are on strike. So it looks like there's a video here and let's uh, share it. Let me rewind to the beginning so we can hear the workers speak. And we'll also share this on our in our show notes. Oh, wow. That is from a different, uh, that's the coil burning. All right, and here we go. Cakes. We do also Walmart cakes. We do uh, cakes to uh, Red Robin. Round quarter sheet, ice cream, chocolate, vanilla, strawberry, mousse cakes, cheesecake. Have you seen them? We're the ones who are making it. When I started off on this line, I think we started off like at maybe like eight cakes per minute, and now we're 13 cakes. These conveyors have gone up excruciatingly fast. Fingers hurting with crampy fingers, arthritis, and back pain. They didn't care. They just said no. We gotta keep the machine going. It's really hard to get any days off. Like some of our women who are going through cancer treatments or cancer follow-ups and, and they are denied that um, access to leave after their eight hours of work. Estamos aquí en la huelga porque estamos pidiendo un mejor aumento. And we deserve the raise, we deserve the pension, and we deserve respect. We are no longer going to allow ourselves to be sabotaged, to be threatened, to be disrespected, no more. We're demanding that they respect our eight hours because they do overwork us oftentimes. You know, um, we can do anywhere between 12 to 14 hours a day. Particularmente a mí nunca me avisan que va a haber overtime. My shift is from 5 a.m. to 1.30. At 1.25, they come up and say, oh, Christina, you need to stay. And don't let me know at 1.25 when I'm ready like to leave to go get my son from school. Workers say a punitive point system punishes them for getting sick. Throughout a 12-month period, we get seven points. If you are late or you leave early, we get half a point. If we are absent, we get one point. If you need some time off to go to the doctor and, and they disapprove the paper, no, you get a point. Actually, this year, I hurt myself, my sciatic nerve. I hurt it. So, you know, I, days that I, I could barely move straight from here, I would go to urgent care. And the insurance that they provide for us would give me three days, three days off. And even if I bring a note from the doctor that gave me those three days, it's still a point because you, the first day you miss is a point. doesn't matter. The cake makers work for Joe John Donner Desserts, which is owned by Rich Products. Rich Products pays its workers in Tennessee $6 an hour more than its California workers. We aren't doing anything wrong. 
just asking for what is fair and what we deserve. And right now it's like a 50 cents raise that they want to give us. Everything's going up and they think we're gonna be able to make it on 50 cents raise. They offering us cents while they making them millions or probably billions of dollars every single year. Right now we're demanding a dollar per year of our contract, so three dollars within the next three years. Are you strong? And I think that's the hardest for all of us, that we have, you know, obligations out of here that this company doesn't understand. We've been here for over a month, and we can go for another one. If you guys damn well please, damn well desire. I have two children, ages of four and seven. My kids are like, well, where were you this whole time? And they can't understand, like, mama has to work. Mama needs to put this roof over your head. And I feel like they take advantage of that. We're women, we need to. Some of us are single moms, some of us are not. Some of us are old, we are um, widowed. You know, the, we, there's a little bit of everything here. But that doesn't mean that it gives them the right to abuse of their power and make us stay to work so long. John workers have been forced to make cakes at excruciating speeds. You're doing 13 cakes per minute. You get a spatula, you put it in the honey, you you scrape it on the cardboard, you put the cardboard down, you get your cake and you put it on. You're doing that 13 times in one minute. Just imagine that. I believe the ice cream lines are running at about 34, maybe a little bit higher cakes per minute. And that, I mean, for you to, to even out the cream on a cake, on a quarter sheet, and you tell me it's coming 13 cakes per minute, that's a lot of cakes. And it's a fast, fast, fast. The cake makers have been on the picket line for more than a month. They say they'll stay out as long as it takes. Can we do it or not? Yes, we can. Holidays, Thanksgiving, and also to 24-7 here. Because if we're not in there, you ain't making money. Because we're the company. And this is what we're going to show them. We are. We have the power, not you. We're getting stronger and... Uh, we don't go nowhere until we get what we need, you know, and uh, nothing else. All right, so we'll share this video on our page at weeklyrev.org. All right, I think it's time for a bit of a music break, and we will be back uh, after this. <laughs> uh, yeah.
track that was the feature heads with their version of hounds of love before that we heard jenny lewis and the watson twins with the big guns before that robert plant and allison krauss with quattro and the names of the songs by black bear that we heard at the beginning of the episode the first one was flowers the weeds then it's okay and then when will the ignorance end okay so i'm going to just share a few more uh articles before uh we go into the next section of the show and let's see here first up i wanted to share here's how we stop facebook there's a petition to shut down facebook surveillance machine a former facebook employee just testified in front of u.s congress and blew the whistle shining a light on the way that apps like instagram and youtube use algorithms that pick and choose what content to show us and not show us in order to keep us scrolling and clicking and to sell more ads Aha. These dangerous algorithms use our own personal data to manipulate us. They're hurting our kids, undermining democracy in the U.S. and globally, and exacerbating discrimination. Fortunately, there's a simple thing Congress can do right now. I mean, if it were that easy, if Congress actually did things that were simple and the right thing, we'd be living in a much different world, right? But okay, I'm going to better this than me just being complaining about it. Okay. It can finally pass a real data privacy law for the United States that makes it illegal for companies like Facebook and YouTube to collect the massive amount of data they need to power their algorithms. The best way to stop Facebook's harms for the whole world is to cut off the fuel supply for its dangerous machine, tell lawmakers to investigate Facebook and pass a real data privacy law that ends their harmful business model forever. All right, so this requires 10 seconds of my time while I'm talking to you. I'm just gonna fill out my info here. Um, least thing I can do is to uh, help move this forward. And I'll post a link to this as well um, online. All right. And this is from Fight for the Future. And they do a lot of good work here. And it's also supported by a lot of different organizations as well. So we'll share a link. And you can also go to the page it's at, uh, howtostopfacebook.org. And also wanted to share a new series. Um, this is a... Looks like it's going to be a web series here um, from Organizing for Power. You can follow them at RLS underscore organizing, introducing a new series that looks under the hood of winning organizing campaigns to see what makes them run. Register now for our first episode featuring inspiring German hospital workers. Interesting. Don't know much about this at all. Hosted by a few different uh, Twitter handles here. And also you can follow me on Twitter at Roman Reimer, R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. -E I mostly retweet and share information such as this. So this is happening on January 27th. So there's lots of time to prepare for this. They have a link hosted by Jane McAlevey and the Rosa Luxemburg uh, Stiftung. Um, so 18 hours in Berlin and 12 p.m. in New York. Uh, so that'll be uh, 9 a.m. here in California. Starting victory in, excuse me, staring victory in the face one campaign at a time. A new series examining successful organizing campaigns. And this is, yes, from the Rosa Luxemburg uh, Stiftung. So it looks like a lot of good information and I could always use more info and to be inspired. All right. So we'll share that. Let's see. And I think that might be it. And of course, there's plenty of other things going on in the world, but this is just what I've uh, gone through for, for today so far. And I did also just want to share a clip um, from the Housing Rights Committee that they shared. The Housing Rights Committee you can follow on Twitter at Housing Rights SF. Why we need more homes, not cops. And then let's share a link uh, Kelly Cutler has uh, shared here on Twitter. 
and it's about a minute and 18 seconds, and there we go. Tracy, Quinn, you have two minutes. Hi, my name is Gracie Quinn. Um, I grew up in San Francisco, partly in D5, when I was a teenager on Fillmore and Eddy. I want to speak in support of this housing and really folk, uh, sorry, really hope that folks who spoke in opposition can hear what I'm saying. I was homeless in San Francisco as a minor after my mom lost our housing in D5. I am now housed and employed and have been housed and employed in San Francisco for many years. When I was homeless, I stole and shoplifted and committed other crimes. I went to juvenile hall because I was found sleeping on private property under the influence of drugs and alcohol, which I started taking after losing my housing as a method of coping with my conditions. I became impolite, angry, developed sustained mental trauma and committed crimes because I was unable to meet my basic needs. Now that I'm housed and employed after a long, violent and difficult struggle to make that happen, I no longer steal or sleep on other people's property. If you'd like to see crime reduced among homeless people in San Francisco, especially those who are from here and grew up here, please allow them access, access to the resources that they need to survive. Thank you so much. So well said. And so this was during the public uh, comment hearing. Um, so really wanted to share that because I feel like that goes in the face of uh, so many people out there spreading lies. Uh, so grateful for uh, Gracie for speaking up and sharing that with us. All right. So next up, I think I'm going to start sharing the Bell Hooks talk. This is from the New School. And again, I mentioned earlier, it's about an hour and a half. So we'll share a good chunk of it here. And folks are welcome to keep on listening uh, afterwards. And we'll provide a link on our page at weeklyrev.org. So uh, let's start it out now. All right. And go. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to the new school. My name is Michelle Mater, and I'm Associate Professor of Media Studies and Film here in this wonderful place we call the New School. And I'm actually teaching a class this semester called Pathways to Learning, where we're utilizing a bell hooks text called Teaching to Transgress, which if you're not familiar with, you should be. And I actually remembered to bring it tonight to get her autograph, Woohoo! <laughs> so um, I'm really thrilled to be here this evening to introduce tonight's program with our amazing, incomparable, returning scholar-in-residence, Bell Hooks. Um, let me just first say, audience members, would you please uh, talk about us using the hashtag Bell Hooks, capital TNS. Thank you. Um, Bell is here with two other also amazing guests, um, and the topic this evening is Mapping Desire, Archaeologies of Change. So I'm going to give a brief background of um, Bell's guests. Uh, Marcy Blackman is an author. Her first novel, Poe Man's Child, received the American Library Association Stonewall Award for Best Fiction and the Firecracker Alternative Book Award for Best New Fiction. Her second novel, Tradition, was noted as one of the Band of Thebes' best books of 2013. I also notice, Marcy, that you have appeared at Branded Saloon 
is in my neighborhood in Brooklyn with my dear friends and colleagues, Rob Fields and Bridgette Davis, who are amazing as well. So welcome, Marcy. And joining in the dialogue is Darnell Moore. Darnell is a senior editor <laughs> at McNews and co-managing co editor at the Feminist Wire. Along with NFL player Wade Davis II, he co-founded You Belong, a social good company focused on the development of diversity initiatives. Darnell's advocacy centers on marginal identity, youth development, and other social issues in the US and abroad. He has led and participated in several critical dialogues, including the 58th session of the UN Commission on the Status of Women. He's just an all-around rather prolific author, activist, and a very PC dude. <laughs> and what do I say about bell hooks? <laughs> bell hooks is an author, activist, feminist, and our scholar in residence here at the New School. And I don't really recall exactly when we first met Belle. It's been that yes. long ago. <laughs> Do you remember? No. Okay, good. <laughs> um, I was going to say, that's terrible, but I can't remember. You can remember. Um, but I do remember that this was the first time I actually caught myself acting like a groupie. <laughs> and I've met and worked with a lot of pretty famous people like Steve Wonder and a few people here and there like that. But I don't think I ever stumbled over myself as much as when I first opened my mouth to speak to Belle. And now, after many years of numerous interactions, I get to call her my sister, my friend, my colleague, and still consider her to be my rock star. I teach here at the New School because it is a place open to dissenting opinions and the avant-garde in scholarship and the arts. And we are proud to host this dialogue. Thank you. Tell people about your film series for the weekend. Oh, see, I'm so bad at this. I have a film series going on starting on Friday. <laughs> it's called Creatively Speaking. Some people may have known about it, been there before. It's our 20th anniversary this year, and we're up at Mist Harlem on 116th and uh, Lenox Avenue. And it's Discovery Weekend, right? Alternative to Columbus, we discover ourselves. So please join us. You can go on. You could go on our website, creativelyspeaking.tv, or also on mistharlem.com and get the um, schedule. But thank you. Hey. Actually, Mapping Desire, Archaeologies of Change, was sort of the overall rubric for the residency. And this particular conversation has to do with moving from pain to power. And that's really what we want to discuss about how, how do we, um, as people from oppressed and exploited groups, find our way to joy, find our way to emotional well-being, to healing. And today, I was in Judy's class, and they were reading Choosing the Margin as a Space of Radical Openness. And I was like, mm, that bell hook, she's smart. This is, a, this, is a, this is a really good essay. So I, I'm just going to read a few sentences. I said, as a radical standpoint, perspective, position, the politics of location necessarily calls those of us who would participate in the formation of counter-hegemonic cultural practice 
to identify the spaces where we begin the process of revision. For many of us, the movement requires pushing against oppressive boundaries set by race, sex, class, domination. Initially then, it is a defiant political gesture. Moving, we confront the realities of choice and location within complex and ever-shifting realms of power relation do we position ourselves on the side of colonizing mentality or decolonization. I was saying earlier to Darnell that I was a younger person when I first read even Ben Sertima's They Came Before Columbus, and I heard him interviewed on the radio, and he kept saying, we have not just been colonized in our minds. We've been colonized in our imaginations. So part of what we want to talk about today is how do we, how do we decolonize? Um, how do we use our imaginations in the service of our well-being? Well, Belle, thanks for having me here again. Um, as we were talking about downstairs, one of the things that struck me when we talked about this was the fact that everywhere I go now, I often ask people to Imagine what a black loving world looks like. Um, and quite surprisingly, it sounds like an easy question, but people tend to not have answers when I ask them that. Um, they actually get stumped. And it's been many occasions where, regardless of the age group, regardless of if I'm on a college campus or in a community, folk cannot seem to sort of work their imagination in such a way that they can even see a world, dream a world, where black people, brown people, oppressed people are not assailed by either the state or some other means. And it made me think about how survival or being in a mode of survival inhibits or stops or keeps us from having the capacity to even dream, which is a violence that is more pronounced, I think, than the type of the gun violence that can deaden us on the street. Imagine how, uh, how, how deadening that is, how, how hard it is then, or how hard it can be for us to live in a world where we can't even see a future where we ourselves are in it living safely. And in that, I think we need to then decolonize our imagination. But what does that look like? I, I don't even know how you begin to do that work. Well, I think we talked last night some about like parents, black parents who perceive a child to be gay or to be becoming gay. And a lot of times the oppression that that child suffers um, as people try to beat it out of him or her, talk, you know, and so how do you, how do you change that? How do you change years of being told something very negative about who you could possibly be? And that, I think, again, has to, has to begin with the imagination. I think it also, I think, yes, it begins with the imagination, but I think it also begins with self before we can actually look out at the larger community. And so we've been told so often, whether we've had nurturing, whether we've grown up in nurturing homes or not, we've constantly faced with this who we are is not good enough. It's not okay. It's not, it needs, we need to strive to be this other thing that's just, that's not us. And so we look at our flaws, which are magical, and our imperfections, which are magical, and we chastise ourselves in our minds and in our imaginations with that. And we, and instead we try to imagine ourselves as something other than perhaps what we are. And I think one of the first things that we have to begin to do is sit and look in the mirror and and be okay with who we are. Did, did, it, I don't know if anybody saw the Latifah uh, 
Bessie Smith movie, and one of my favorite scenes in that film is when she takes off all her clothes after everybody's gone and everybody's left her, and then she's in the empty house, and she disrobes in front of the mirror, and she takes off her, her makeup, and she sits there for quite a long beat in cinema time, and she just beholds herself. And that she doesn't flinch away, she doesn't pick at herself, she doesn't, and it's such a powerful scene to me because I think that's where we have to start, you know? Well, I think that I was thinking a lot about how much a culture of domination always wants us to think of power as outside ourselves. Um, so that we think of power as, I'll get this fabulous career or this fabulous partner or this um, fabulous um, amount of money. And, but power is always conceived as power over something and not as, what is my power within? And so I, I feel that part of our colonization as brown people, black people, Asian people, is we often internalize that sense of powerlessness because we feel like, well, what's my power in relationship to the world? I don't have any. You know? And so I, I, I think that we often embrace death. You know, my brother, who's 60-some years old, a recovering addict for 25 years, um, just really beats himself up for not having money. And I say to him, Ken, look at the blessing of your life. How many working class black men can come back from addiction, um, can, can be born again in recovery? But on his scale of evaluation, that doesn't mean anything. And so part of what I learned early on is we have to change the scale of evaluation. Because if we continue to judge ourselves by the standards set within that imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, then we never move. Because even if we move, but we still have what I call the voice of judgment. My theory is that the dominating culture depends on the voice of judgment. You know, that even when you're succeeding, you're not good enough. Even when, you know, I didn't think I was a writer, even after I had books published. Because, you know, for me, you know, what, what did I think a writer would be? What would be the magic moment that I could say, I'm a writer? And that whole thing had to do with my needing some type of validation outside myself to give me power um, and not to be able to think of, you know, power that I can give myself, that we can self-generate. Um, and I worry... And I talked a little bit, and we're not going to talk about Black Lives Matter tonight, but I was saying sometimes I worry because so many of our energies of protest and resistance are outer-directed. You know, last night I asked the audience, what if we took away all the police brutality in our society against black males? Would black males still be, would black males be self-actualized? Is it really police brutality that is keeping black males from you know, I mean, I think about, I mentioned my brother last night, how my father used to say to him, glory, to me, glory, your brother ain't worth a nickel. And he loved putting my brother down. I mean, it's amazing that my brother could come out of addiction. You know, when I hear people, like, putting little black children and boys, especially you stupid, you dumb, uh, down, you think, how, how will that person empower themselves from that? How, do, how are we healing from that? I was over here like I was in church. Like, 
I don't even need to talk. Just keep talking. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh, I was I was downstairs and I, I was saying to Belle, like for all the the good that I experienced, if I feel so guilty sometimes when I make when I have wins. Like, damn. I mean, as a black gay man, as a as a body in this world, period. And I, it has okay. something to do with my with me being black and and me being and me being gay. Um, me always on the other side of oppressions that sort of have a way of beating um, this, this notion of self-actualization, our well-being out of us, so that I never feel good enough often. I feel like I always have to go the extra mile to prove something, um, to myself even. But I don't know. I mean, I think you're, you're hitting on something, and it's making me think, well, what are the rules of our engagement? Like, who, who are our real enemies? Isn't internal abolition as much... All right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, what does internal abolition look like? I mean, one actually needs to know that they're bound by a thing in order to get free from it. Um, and that work requires us being in community with people, right? So, like, I don't know if I won't know that I need to be free unless I am actually aware of all those things that I need to be free from. And I think that that work is really hard. Self, self, self. Like the, the awareness of where one is situated in the world and how those oppressions are working out on you has to happen before one is actually self-actualized or, or freed. And I think that's important and hard work, though. When I, when I was small my, my, and, and all through my life, um, my parents always told me, you know, whatever I tried to do, they would say, you can do anything you want. Often it was followed with, you just have to do it better than white people. But, 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 but it was never, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't. You can do whatever you want. You can do anything you want. You know, and I also used to witness my mother on what I think is like are some of the, are some really small things, but I think the small things, as we stack them up, create the big thing, right? They create the, the big picture. And whenever she would do something, whether it was, you know, baking a baking a cake, or whether it was um, doing the taxes for my 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 parents for their for their store, she she would when she did something well. She would she would say things like "delicious, Harriet," or she would say "well done, Harriet." Like she would praise herself. And all I, right, all and right. I got to witness that, you know. And I and 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 even even in witnessing that, though, I still fall in the same, you know. I, like I do these things, and like I've done a lot of things in my life. They're kind of all over the place. But I like I've ridden my bicycle across the country. I've written books. I've jumped out of airplanes. I've done all kinds of things, you know, because I envisioned what I wanted to do, and I just and I go out and I do it. And, but I still have these moments when I call my mom up and I'm like, I can't write for shit. I'm throwing my computer out of the window. I'm doing that. And she won't entertain it. You know, she just, she just, and we get, we get, our arguments are, I can't listen to that. I can't hear that. I, I can't hear that from you because you, you are too capable. You are too, and it's just constantly, constantly reinforced. And I wonder what happens if we take that reinforcement and we do that with others, or I do that with Darnell, or I do that with Belle, or I do that with you know any of you sitting in the audience. We do that with each other as as well as ourselves. What what does the world begin to look like if we begin to start those things? Well, I I was telling people I had a birthday recently, and when I had my birthday, I had people come over and bring a poem as a gift. And um, this year, somebody brought a kind of I called it a ditty more than a poem, but it was like um, it starts off. It says when God says yes. I asked God, was it okay to be melodramatic? And she said, yes. <laughs> and you go down this poem, and it really struck me 
about how much of our time in our life we say no to the self. That that is part of the role of the voice of judgment. Um, that it is saying no. And I was telling Darnell about how initially it was very difficult for me to think about a Bell Hooks Institute, um, which is something I'm beginning in Berea. I have been particularly aware, especially through Marlin and Essex even more, of how if we don't take care of, you know, Essex used to always say when he was leaving, take care of your blessings. But Essex did not take care of his archives. And then you get the homophobic, hateful families that come in. And, you know, I always had this image. My mother's dead now. But I used to have this image that my mother and my sister, oldest sister, would come to my house. And they would open drawers where I had recent writing. And they were like, nobody needs to read this shit. And they would, they would uh, be busy throwing it in the fireplace and burning it. But you know, that happens to black people and black writers all the time. I've always loved the story that's told of Georgia Douglas Johnson, that this white man who's doing literary work on her work uh, goes somehow to where, near where she lives. And somebody says, oh, her house is up for sale. Uh, you could go see it. He goes to see it and finds in the basement, as the story is told, all of her work, her papers, slated to go to the trash. And he asks the realtor, oh, do you mind if I have those papers? And she says, well, you know, they don't belong to me. You would have to contact the family. Then you get these families, you know, like Langston Hughes's family that would not allow uh, Isaac Julian to say anything about Langston being gay or to even use Langston's words. So that, you know, and what do we know? What do we know as poor and working class black people about how important? Because to, to believe you have a legacy worth preserving is to have that yes about yourself. So when I started feeling like, wow, um, I should do something. Because my sister, Teresa, died unexpectedly a year and a half or so ago. And I thought, she seemed really well. And then all of a sudden, you know, she'd fallen and she, she was dead in the space of weeks. And it made me think about, well, what, Bell Hooks, what are you doing about your work? And I had somebody do, you know how I am, um, failure somewhat at computers, do a search for me, like, are there black women that have centers? And they could only find one, which was the Shirley Chisholm Center here in Brooklyn. And I thought, OK, what should I do? What would I want? You know, Because I think there again, we go back to the imagination. What would I want for my papers? What would I want for my artifacts? And number one I want is for people like me to be able to access those things without showing ID, with, without having to go through metal detectors, or what have you. So I thought, well, you know, Belle, why don't you just create an institute? And I went to black females who had centers and things, and people were 100% negative. You don't know what you're doing. You know, I went to a prominent black man, and he just said to me, you stupid. This is the stupidest thing I've heard. I mean, so, I mean, what I want us to think about is how if you don't have the yes, you will be crushed by other people. Yeah. Even people you, these are people I admired and respect that I thought would cheer me on. But the, but the good thing is that I, ha, I have a cheerleader inside me now, you know, that can say yes. 
Yes, bell hooks, try it. If you, all that can happen is it cannot work. And that I think is what I, I feel like if we could instill that in little brown, black and, and yellow and whatever children, the yes, the yes to yourself. Um, I had a white woman friend who parented and she was like really big on just saying yes to her children, just being affirming. And I thought, wow, what would that be like? Because our childhood was riddled with no's and punishments. And then the pleading against the no. But Marcy, I'm really um, interested in the idea that you got the yes, but then what made you become a person who couldn't give the yes fully to yourself? Because I got the yes in, at home. I got the yes in my womb circle. And then when I went out in the world, they were, I, I, the world said, what do you mean, yes? You know, didn't anybody tell you no? You know, and so, so the, so the words, so, the, so even though I was like, yes, 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 you know, I was the little salmon, you know, swimming upstream, and 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 everybody was swimming downstream, and I literally was. When I rode my bike across the country, I rode from San Francisco to the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and I forgot. I first rode up from San Francisco to Oregon to Portland, and I, 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 I didn't think I was a city kid. I didn't, you know, this was a, this was a me thinking I can do this. And I didn't think to check the wind direction, right? So I'm the only one for 800 miles, the only one riding north, and I'm passing cyclist after cyclist going the other direction. And to a person, you're going the wrong way, they yelled at me. You're going the wrong way. And that's kind of the story of my life, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to be willing to, you know, even with all the no's back and coming back, I think every once in a while it seeps in. You have this, like, you have to practice due diligence, you know, and, and you, have to, you have to be good to yourself. You have to treat yourself with kindness and treat yourself and, and with acceptance. And, you know, I, I went through a, a recent breakup and um, decided that I, and, and my response to it was, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to date myself for a while. I'm going to take myself out to dinner. I'm going to take myself to the movies. And, and I realized I've been treating people really well. <laughs> you know? Seriously. And I'm like, exactly. And then I was like, why don't I treat myself like this? So I think it's a constant, I think it's a, I think it's a constant battle to be able to stay in the yes like I, and know. i think that we might even argue that part of the, what characterized the dysfunctional family and i'm not one of those people that believe all families are dysfunctional is that the dysfunctional family is based on domination and the no um so you know whatever it is you want to be there's a no and so i think that the question begins how do we begin as a people, as African-American people, as other people of color, undo the no. My, my thing that I always heard is, nigger girl, who do you think you are? I heard that from so many different sources. And, I, and in a way, when people said about the Institute, um, you know, why, who do you think you are? They were still saying, nigger girl, who do you think you are? The joy is that I know who I am. But I know who I am through struggle. And so that I want to talk, I think we have to be open about the, the place of struggle to be and find and know yourself. And for me, a lot of that comes to, to, from therapy. You know, like when you've been raised in the total fucked up context, 
Um, one of the things is that you don't see clearly. I would tell my therapist, white woman, trailer trash white woman uh, as a background, very overweight, um, not the kind of model um, that would have been my fantasy therapist. And she, but she, one of the things that she taught me very deeply is one, don't look at what people say, look at what they do. And two, she told me, why can't you ask yourself what's wrong with this picture? And I talked the other night about, you know, calling her, you know, when the, I've left the boyfriend, but I want him to get back with me and he's treating me bad. And I would call her. She was like, call me if you're feeling like you need someone. And I was like, well, I want to go over to his house. I want to see him. And she would be like, that's fine. But if you think you're going to find some love there, don't waste your time. Because there hasn't been any love there. And you're not going to make it there. And it's like moments like that when she says, you know, to, to try to break yourself into reality. Because I think that one of the things that holds so many of us back is fantasy. That we, we, we are raised in the fantasy. So even when you're in something where you're being treated like total shit, a job or or someone saying something, we, we don't hear it. I mean, when I would tell her things that people had said and done, she would, she would, sometimes she would cry and say, I just can't believe that happened to you. And I'd be like, what's your problem? <laughs> you know, because I had been taught that the tough thing was to endure those things, to, um, I mean, to, to um, get past them, not to, not to walk, cry, not to whine. Um, and so I think back to Marcy's comment, one of the things I think as black people particularly we haven't said yes to is our grief. Um, our collective grief as black leaders who touched our lives were taken from us uh, very young. Our grief about the fact that we don't have that many black leaders right now that we feel like, yes, I would follow that person. You know, and that there's, there's a sorrow about that. There's a sense that we've lost our way and we don't know how to find it. Because we're still stuck in that old model of one leader, rather than the many possibilities around us uh, of leadership, of guidance. And you know, a lot of times, I'm one of these people, I am, I have to admit, total book slut, um, <laughs> constant reader of self-help books. Um, and I think, I mean, you, you, you don't know how much we as people of color think really crazy things. Like I think to myself frequently, who's buying all of these self-help books like Brene Brown and um, all of these things? And I think, well, white people are teaching themselves how to let go the voice of judgment, how to resist the internal dominator. But what are we doing? You know. Uh, I read a, a young woman was writing a paper for me and she was saying, we're so enamored of the oppressor's face that we can't turn away, that we can't say no to images. I mean, I, the hostility that people directed towards me when I said, no, I didn't like 12 Years a Slave, that if I didn't see another movie where a black woman was being beaten and raped and abused as long as I lived, I would be fine. Because what is that image doing? I think when we've watched certain images over and over again, what the message they give us is there's no way out. No matter what you do, no matter where you go, you can't get out. 
because you can't get out as long as you're saying no. And so, I mean, even in thinking about who could be on this panel, I had to really think about who are the people that say yes to themselves. You know, I had been with Mar Marcy as a friend through the, the profound grief, because saying yes doesn't mean you get away from pain, that she felt a lot of grief over her relationship ending. But, you know, it's again, what do you do with that grief? How do you use it? Um, how do you turn it into uh, Marcy growing as a self in the world so that she's not stuck? Because a lot of us are stuck. We're stuck in the abuse of childhood. We're stuck in the abuse of adulthood. We're stuck in the teacher telling us we're dumb and stupid. And those tapes just play over and over. So we can say that part of the movement from pain to power, power as agency over our lives is getting rid of those tapes. And it sounds simple, but it's an ongoing process. Darnell, you were talking about that earlier, how the process just goes on. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here like, damn. <laughs> um, you know, often I have to remind myself of who I was at 14, and I um, recall, like, in my, in my world, at that time, there was a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of hell happening in my home, right? Like, so there was a lot of violence that I was witnessing in my home um, on the streets. So when I would have to go to school, um, I would have to be confronted with violence then too, right? So after not sleeping at night because your mom is being beat up by your father and you walk on the street, you're being called punks and sissy and faggots and um, beat up by the kids in your neighborhood. Um, for some reason, when I look back at pictures, I never thought that 14-year-old me um, smiled until I started looking back at pictures. I actually forgot that I smiled at that age. And in fact, when I looked at the pictures, I kept thinking, how could you find your smile in the midst of all that hell? But it wasn't until recently when I was writing that I remembered that it was also at that same age when a white teacher told me, one, that I was a bad writer. She actually said in front of my class, you can't write. That's what she said. Um, but during that same, that same year, that same year after I was literally almost set on fire, when my father is beating my mom, I went to school and I knocked on Ms. Yaldell's door, my guidance counselor, and I said to her, I, I need to be in the academically talented classes. At 14. So where did that come from? I don't know. Well, I'm sitting here thinking about it as you're talking, and I'm like, what was it in me or in the environment or in the spirit that propels someone who's literally feeling like they're in hell? to go into this guidance counselor's office and demand because my grades were fine, to put me in AT. And then I found a private school in the Yellow Pages. We didn't have Google then. <laughs> and I called this school up and I faked my mom's voice. I act like I was her. <laughs> and she's probably watching me now. You she know this story. Now. I faked her, I, fa I had a high voice and I act as if I was my mother. And I, I asked them to send an, uh, an application to the house. I filled this application out. I wrote my mom's essay and got into this private school. Now, all of that sort of struggle and that power, that self-empowerment occurred in the midst of straight up hell, which tells me like, that there is the potential within our, the living in and how we live through our traumas to locate that deep sense of power within ourselves, to pull ourselves up out of it. I think what was propelling me was this idea that there has to be something better than this shit that I'm in right now. There has to be something better. My, I had to imagine and see a thing that was different than a home where mom was getting beat, where she did not deserve to be beat, where she would, you know, a home where we were fighting to find, find out what to eat. And I, I figured, well, I need to dream that 
and I need to do what I can to make it happen. Um, so part of it had to do with my imagination that, in, that inspired the action, like the real-time action on the ground. Which is, of course, if we read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning about the Nazi Holocaust, and I mean, he talks so deeply about the role of the imagination. What keeps you going? What, what does the imagination make possible? And so when we think about fantasy, there's that line between fantasy and the imagination. Because if we get addicted to fantasy, then we trance and we never, we, we never come back to reality. I always say to people, I like the definition of insanity that says it's when you're not in reality. And my people, my people, as Zora Neale Hurston would say, a lot of us are not in reality. We are fantasizing a life, or which is different from imagining um, a life. Because whenever you concretely imagine in a real way, you also do have to imagine what are the concrete steps that are going to get me there. Uh, and that, that is, you know, the, you know that little, uh, I think they have it at the Buddhist Museum. There's a, a statement that says, you don't know how um, strong you are until you know how strong love makes you. But you can't, you can't get to the love until you start with that self. Um, it's like you got like a piece of fruit where you got to cut off the rotten parts. Um, you can't get to the well-being uh, without doing that. And I, I was thinking when I read, you know, a lot of Brene's work where she's talking about vulnerability and how healing comes to through making yourself vulnerable. But then I was thinking about how, as black people, people of color, <laughs> we're told again and again not to be vulnerable especially black masculinity, heteronormative masculinity, vulnerability is seen as, oh no, that will get you killed. I mean, when I was a kid, I had a lot of grief and I cried a lot. And my whole family would shame me and I was called Miss White Girl. There was a white woman actress, Jean Autry, who played the role of little rich girl and she cried all the time. And you know, you can imagine, like I just thought, what is wrong with me? I just cry all the time. And I just felt an enormous sense of sadness about my life, about the life around me. You know, and it took me years to stop that crying. I had nighttime terrors. Um, but it's like, it's work. You got to work it. You gotta work towards your happiness and you gotta choose. And think about how do we, as people who've been told we don't have choice, recognize that you do have choice? Sometimes I think it's a, a, a thing of like, I mean, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, you know? And I think that. I don't as, know about that, Mark. <laughs> and I think, as, as Darnell was saying, that, that it, you know, in the midst of all this hell, you know, there's a point, I think, where you come to, well, if this is it, well, then I might as well envision and imagine and do the things that I want to do because this is it, you know? And, and I, I, I had an experience that wasn't born out of like being in the midst of hell, but I was lost. I was lost on a bicycle in the mountains in Italy, and I was lost. I really was lost, and I was getting dark, and I didn't know how to get back home, and all I could do was look out and see other mountain ranges across, and I thought, you know what? I could die right now, right now, and the world would continue, and nobody would know that I no longer was on the planet. 
maybe after a couple of weeks of my family not hearing from me, they might, they might, you know. And this was a trip where, you know, I mean, I think I had like $200 in my pocket and I saved a bunch of money for a plane ticket and said, I'm going, I'm gonna go do this, you know. I tend to do things like that. I don't necessarily recommend that. But, um, <laughs> but in any case, that moment was really freeing for me. I think that was a big turning point. It was at that point in my life when I decided, I'm, I, I am a writer. I'm, I'm gonna do this because it doesn't, my, my, as much as we, t as much as all this, this, this pain is forced upon us, and this no is put upon us, and this is, is where it doesn't. It's really about my life right now, right here, and it doesn't. In the scheme of things, in this weird way, it kind of doesn't matter. It's like it was so freeing. So if, 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 if I can just disappear and nobody's going to notice, then I can go and do whatever I want to do, and nobody's going to, and it doesn't matter, you know. Well, I was thinking about, um, again, vulnerability, Marcy, because to me, I, I don't know how to ride a bike. So I never learned. And I always feel incredibly intimidated with Marcy because, uh, you know, she does her bicycle tours uh, with people of New York City. Uh, she takes her bike when she goes places. But one of the things that struck me both about the other conversations we've had is the role of courage. Um, because I do think that, in a sense, Marcy's back riding, bike riding has been a kind of spiritual practice of courage, of her, each step of the way, growing stronger, growing more courageous. Um, and I think that that's really vital to moving from pain to power, the role of courage, the step that you take. Um, and I think it's interesting, Darnell, that we don't, I mean, for some of us, the reason we believe in God or higher power is because you've taken that step. Like when you, you know, who knows what made you wake up and say, Darnell, you know, you need to look for a better school. Um, I mean, when people first asked me to write children's books for black children, I was like, no way. You know, I'm not happy. I'm an intellectual. <laughs> how, how am I going to write something for children? But I do, um, and I've, I've been coming out more, I do have a very intense spiritual practice in my life. So I, I appeal to the divine, like, if this is something I'm meant to do, then you're going to have to give it to me, because I don't see it. I don't see where it's going to come from. And I tell people, you know, I'm lying in bed. It's like almost midnight. And all of a sudden, I have in my head that first line from Happy to Me, Nappy. Girl pie hair smells clean and sweet. It's soft like cotton, a halo, a crown, a covering for heads that are round. And I tell people that part of, part of why I'm a believer in higher powers, where did that come from? Why did it come? You know, all I know is that I had put it out there in the universe and so I want us to talk about manifesting as a key to claiming one's power, because I do think that those of us who come from poor backgrounds, the idea of manifesting, because one of the things, when you're in the, in the environment of intimate terrorism, you're trying to manifest like crazy, like, <laughs> oh, if dad would just stop yelling, if mom would just stop hitting, all of the things, and, and it ain't happening. You know, you're, you're, you're visualizing like, I always laugh with the, you know, when people say you can visualize wealth, and I was like, honey, if all it would took was visualization, <laughs> you know, so that, and yet at the same time, again, 
we have to try to sow that seed that helps us to manifest. Um, and I think that that is such a key to how we move from pain to power. And it's really been hard for me to think about because I think there's the hokey, like, oh, just imagine, just visualize. And it, it doesn't always work that that, well, it doesn't always work. But manifesting in the sense of recognizing an energy that's inside you and thinking that you can grow the seed of that energy. And I just um, finished reading uh, the biography of Oral Roberts. Um, and one of the things, if you know the ministry of the evangelical person, Oral Roberts, was that he, he developed that whole thing called the seed. Uh, like, what is the seed that you plant? Um, and, you know, and preached lots of sermons about, well, you know, if you're plant, planting a peach, you're not going to grow an apple. That you've got to be clear about what is the seed that I'm planting. And that you start with, you start with a zero. I mean, you started with the minus. The teacher done told you, but you can't write. <laughs> but some kind of way, you worked. You know, maybe even a person telling you you can't write makes you aware that you want to write. I don't want to believe what that person is saying. So that's my seed that I'm, I'm planning, that I'm still going to be a writer, uh, even though these folks are saying I can't. I was going to say, it, it, I, I was thinking, I was, a, I was a church boy at 14, actually. So it's, as you're talking, I actually would be, this is so, so corny, but I would go to the restroom and pray and read the Bible um, at 14. And Strange. <laughs> but I mean, I was praying for stuff like, God, stop my dad from hitting my mom. Yeah. I remember yeah. praying like, you know, I admitted this in writing once. Like, I, I prayed for God to get him out of my life. And I said, if you need to kill him do whatever you need to do. Like, that's how real it was. And I believed it. At the same time, I was also praying for good grades. Um, and got all A's on my report card and got all these. So I, I, I do wanna, I wanna talk about the metaphysics and this, and this sort of realm of spirit as a legitimate area that we should take seriously. Exactly. Um, that we don't. And, and I, I think so many of us, regardless of what that may look like, um, I know, for instance, that a lot of my strength has come from somewhere outside of self, if that's my ancestors, if that's my grandfather, who I feel like, look, if, if that's the energy that's available, what we haven't talked about is collectives and community. So like, I'm looking around a room at the people who I know, like, keep me alive. You know, the, their, their energy in my, in my in, you know, my, my neighbors, my best friend who lives four houses down, like, the, the, the energy that's present in our collective relationship I don't. I want to talk about self in relation to community, not a self in in relate like just out here in a vacuum. I am here because of my people. But if you think about it, I mean that was the core of Alice Miller's a no notion that the abused child can survive if they have a witness, and in a sense that witness becomes the person that offers you a different sense of yourself. Um, and most of us who come out of abuse into our recovery and our salvation have had those people who have witnessed on our behalf. Um, and those people usually come in our community um, that we live within. So that I think that that is a very crucial aspect of moving from pain to power, that you have the healthy people around you. 
Because let's face it, I always say, my Angie Lou used to say, there's, that you're never lonely in Babylon. So, you know, whenever you want some toxic stuff, it's available, <laughs> you, can, you can go out and get it. Uh, you can have friends and people who will lead you astray in a minute. Um, and I mean, one thing Darnell and I were talking about is, you know, we can decide that we want to be loved, that we want to be in relationships of love. But that doesn't mean that we're going to find the people to be with. Talk about it, cuz. And so, um, I know I was teasing him earlier. I was like, I don't mind having a gay man as a partner, you know? Because before I die in this world, I want to have that sense of what it is to love and be loved. Because many of us coming out of abusive settings, we've not had that. We, we don't know what that looks like. And that's the other thing. Sometimes you have to find out what something looks like. Um, and then you have to grieve that you don't have it. And you may be getting old and you don't have it. <laughs> so you may have to figure out um, what is enough within that. Um, it, I know that in my own longing for partnership and love, it has he led me to value friends more. Because I recognize in communion, the, the female search for love, I talked about what does it mean to dance in a circle of love? Where you, when one person moves out of the circle, you still got people to dance with. But you've got to cultivate, that's again, the seed that you've got to cultivate. And what does it mean to value a friend as you would value a partner? And that is, again, I think, totally counter-hegemonic because everything in our culture is constantly telling us that the partner is everything. Finding the partner. And so not finding love, but finding the partner. And that, especially black women, that's why we get hooked up with so many people who treat us cruelly, abusively, because we're trying to find the partner. Uh, we're trying to validate that I'm worth something because I have found somebody, and not that I um, am hoping to love. And then having to grieve that that love doesn't come in the directions that you might think a lot of the love in my life, for example, comes from white people. I would like to have some love uh, concretely from black people in my life. I love you, though. But I learned, <laughs> thank you, Marcy. But, but I learned, though, that am I going to turn myself away from love because it's not coming in the color um, that I, or the form that I think it should come? That's the saboteur. That's the sa sabotage that keeps us in pain rather than saying, you know, I'm going to have to go where the love is. And where the love is, is the hope of community. That's why I tell people, they get annoyed. I said, I take my community where I find it. Because sometimes you find um, that helping hand, that person that you understands you, like Barbara Smith's sister says, I was not meant to be alone and without you who understand. And sometimes that person that understands is not in the embodied form that you want them to be in. And that is a challenge, I think, for black people like myself who are obsessed with style and beauty, and we want things to come in a certain kind of package. Um, and what, what package? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I had said on my tombstone it was going to say, I die for style. <laughs> but in the search for true love, you begin to let that go because you realize that, that 
that you can't eat that, that you can't, that I, I keep um, pushing uh, David Wolverstone's book, uh, Unhooked, about addictions, because it's so much about feeding the void within ourselves. That where does that void come from? I was thinking that one of the places of power for me, strong place for power, is not looking at television. I don't see how any black and brown person can look at television and, and come away whole. Because it's like, even without you knowing it, there's something going on there that's chipping away at your value, that's repeatedly telling you that you value less. So I think about those children that we're sitting in front of the, the TV all day long, and then we, we think, why aren't they healthy? Why don't they want to learn? Blah, 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 blah. Well, it's interesting when, when we go back, take it back to imagination, that for just, for me, watching television is like watching somebody else exercise their imagination, you know? And I'm not, whereas reading a book, I'm exercising my imagination because I'm interacting with it, you know? So when I'm watching this box, and I've watched my share of television, I'm not, you know, I'm just, when I'm watching this box, though, I, I sometimes I catch myself and I'm like, I'm sitting here watching what somebody, somebody else imagining what they wanted and seeing it through and doing it. Why am I sitting here watching this? Why, am I, why aren't I out here imagining and seeing through what I, what I need to see? But I also was thinking a, a lot in my life about how the years that I've stopped watching TV, it's like I can't talk to a lot of people because that's how they talk. Cross class, cross race. They talk through some show that they're, they're seeing, um, some comment about a show. And I was thinking about, I mean, when I started the dream of conversations, I said, you know, I, I'm just not seeing people learning through lectures. Um, people come to lectures and they don't remember a lot of what has taken place. I really truly believe that the revolutionary form of learning is conversation, that we remember what people tell us. We already know, marketing learned long ago that people will buy a book rather than through an ad, through Stephanie telling me, Belle, you gotta read this book, or me telling her, and that we pass that on so that the conversation, to me, is a source of power. And to be able to talk with um, people about our past or about our traumas, because I find my family still very hostile. My sister will tell me, well, you know, if, if you just shut up talking about it, maybe you could get over. And I'm like, you know, it's because I can talk about it um, that I can find my way to, to leave it behind, um, to let it go. But if you can't ever speak about it and you just want to cover it up, which we're being always asked to cover up our emotional feeling to where, and I think this is especially true of black males, where you're just emotionally numb. And, um, you know, um, the feeling black men in my life have been gay men. And gay men, not because they're gay, but individual gay men like Marlon, like Essex, who struggled for critical self-awareness, who were willing to interrogate themselves to, to arrive at a different place. Gay men who thought, you know, I see the patriarchy in other gay men, and I am working to throw that off. And Darnell is one of the, the our leaders as a black gay man who is saying, I do not embrace patriarchy as a sign of my gayness. 
because there are just as many gay men who act like male domination and maleness is all that. Um, and it takes, again, courage to stand up and say, you know, I don't want to do that. For, for Darnell to be one of the men behind Feminist Wire, is there any other man? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we got, we got some. <laughs> Don't work. I wanted to just say though that um, I recently, to be quite honest, I looked at um, uh, this. It's a a, a a colleague. He has a on, on his Facebook page. He and his partner. He's white and gay. And I was I was looking at their pictures, and all of them were coupled, and they looked really really happy, like in costumes on like holidays, and they're like at the <laughs> beach. And I'm just like, where, where they do that? At? Like where you know where. <laughs> I really had this moment like what and I had I, it was such a deep moment for me and, and I started thinking well damn um, black men attempting to do the radical act of loving black men like Joseph Beam said is a, such a, a, a precarious action or, or it's, it's it, it takes work right because you're attempting to love a reflection of yourself a reflection you've been taught to hate um, You've been, you've been violated by strict gender roles, by heteronormativity. You've been taught to hate all, right. all of these aspects of yourself. And then you're attempting to love a reflection of yourself when you don't even love yourself. So we get into these, I think, like as black, queer, bi, you know, bi, whatever, as men, like particularly like this, this thing where you're attempting to love in the midst of a violent form of like responses to all the things that are, that are beating you down. That's very different than I think white men coming together trying to love each other without loving through racism and loving through the patriarchy and loving through the, the, the violence that misogyny works itself out on us. All right. Um, and I, I want to say like that, that it's hard then. It becomes really hard because I, I think I've been successful. And I told you this downstairs. I feel like I, have, I can count successes in so many areas and in my interpersonal relationships, particularly with other black men, it feels hard as shit. Now, I'm not blaming that on the crabs. I want to name the barrel as the system that turns otherwise loving beings into fighting beings, right? So I think that work though requires like some deep, deep, and, and I'm not, I'm not, and I don't, I'm not talking as someone who is himself freed from the pull of all these things I'm talking about. I myself have to, to think about my position in patriarchy. Um, the way I can be sexist and misogynist, the way that, that my skewed understandings of gender impacts who I date, who I choose to have sex with, who I choose to allow into my space. That shit still limits me, even well, as I'm trying to you know, work myself out of it. One, for me, I mean, I still think that the recovery movement, uh, <laughs> Bill Wilson, everything, is still one of the great movements in our society. It's one of the few places where people that are poor can have a therapeutic practice without paying for it. I'm talking about AA, NA. It's one of the places where, where many of us coming from impoverished backgrounds have been able to turn to heal. But um, the, the, the thing that I take from the idea that um, you're always um, vulnerable to addiction is that we're always vulnerable. I mean, that's why I don't let myself watch certain things or look at certain things, because it's so deeply ingrained in us, the white supremacist seeds, um, that we're not beautiful, that we're not this,
that if you, you know, just, I love fashion magazines, but I began to notice that the more I looked at the white fashion magazines, the more I felt not good somewhere inside myself. And that I had to, I was teasing a friend, I was like at church, we used to sing this, Jesus be a fence all around me every day. So actually I was talking uh, with my sister friend, Laverne Cox, and we were talking about, just think about her, that she has been deeply affected with, by Bell's work, that she is critically aware of the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy at the same time that she's working within that. How can she protect uh, herself? How can she make the compromises that don't destroy her integrity? And you would think black people, people of color, that we would have all kind of groups where we're talking about this shit. Where, 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 where we're telling each other, well, this is what you have to do uh, when you go to, and pl to play that part, but you don't feel like that's, that something is being asked of you that you can righteously do. But think about how, how many areas of our life that we have to, um, you know, confront as an individual, but we don't confront it in the collectivity. It's, along with conversation, I'm very interested in collaboration. I've been in this women's group for five years, and one of the things that we try to do in the group is resolve problems collaboratively and collectively, rather than the liberal individual model that says, you've got to solve this yourself. You know, like even if the problem is, like the one woman that just found out her husband is cheating and she would like him to leave, but she doesn't have the money, um, then where we can put out in the world, is there a place um, that somebody has? Um, or, you know, that person might not feel like they can say, I need a free place. Um, and just that sense, again, of how we engage acts of self-care and emotional well-being. And it's very, very difficult, because I find sometimes that when you bring up these things with other black people, people feel very threatened. It's like you're bringing out of the closet something that people want you to keep in the closet. Even to talk about, I mean, Marlon and I used to argue all the time because he would say, you know, black men loving black men. And I was like, oh, Marlon, black men dealing with their childhoods first because you cannot get to the love if you can't deal with where the childhood wound is. Because I've been thinking so much cross-race about father abandonment and how many black men, white men, I was reading uh, Wayne Dyer's memoir, I can see clearly now, and he talks about how, you know, his father just walks out when the, he never saw his father, um, and how that was the, the imprint that governed his whole life. His whole life, he searched um, for that missing father. And I, I think that so many black men engage that longing, that yearning. Because like my brother, even though dad was there, my brother began to feel that dad couldn't possibly be his dad. Because his real dad wouldn't be putting him down all the time. His real dad would want to do things with him. And, and that's how Wade Dyer felt, because the stepfather was an a, um, insane alcoholic man. And so it was, it, it was fueling that longing for the person who can, again, the interface, where healing does not take place in isolation. We cannot move from pain to power in isolation. 
Because let's remember that Darnell tells us he went to the guidance counselor. You know, he didn't just by himself try to enact it. He had to reach out and have somebody else meet him in the ground where he was seeking transformation. We're going to open up for questions. Your name, be loud, be short. Um, your name? All right. Time to uh, wrap up the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Again, you can find all the links that we talked about on our page at weeklyrev.org. We'll play a song, and then we'll be uh, out of here. And our last show is going to be on December 31st. Uh, please do check out all the other shows here at mutinyradio.fm. We also have an archive of this show um, up on the website as well. So uh, hope everyone uh, has a great weekend.
radio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. Let's watch I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of... <laughs> YouTube uh, with Michael Spiegelman. Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. We watch a full-length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. Yeah, L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. That's every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, 5%. Right, I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show, 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh. Let's watch full-length movies. Let's do a full-minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See you next are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Hey, Mutineers, Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we got to serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz latin gospel hip-hop and traditional folk ballads great stuff check it out labor and love is every saturday 10 a.m to 12 p.m serve somebody since 1971 the san francisco tenants union has been fighting for the rights of tenants and for the preservation of affordable housing in san francisco starting from the struggle for rent control in the 1970s the tenants union has been the city's leading advocate for tenants the Tenants Union is supported by membership and counseling donations, and this enables advocacy to be uncompromising and not influenced by pressures from government or other funders. It is a 501c4 since it campaigns for political candidates, so generally donations are not tax deductible, although large donations may qualify. Please visit WFTU.org for more information. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Black, black, plastic. Mutiny Radio. FM. Saturday. Noon to two. Every Saturday. All music. All night.
ACLU of California reminds us that we have the right to speak out. Both the California Constitution and the First Amendment to the United States Constitution protect our rights to free expression. There are many questions we face when we decide to organize and speak out. Do we need a permit? Are there limitations? Or when or when can we not demonstrate? What about civil disobedience? For all of this information, please check out aclunc.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Alex! Can you tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is in 